Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I am director of the ECFR and today's World in 30 Minutes is dedicated to Egon Barr, the architect of Ostpolitik who died at the age of 93 last Wednesday and to discuss his legacy and what Ostpolitik means today for Germany and for the rest of Europe, I'm joined by three experts. Uh, first up is Christoph Bertram, who was the director of the German Institute for International and Security Affairs, the director of the, the London-based International Institute for Strategic Studies, and for many years also worked for Die Zeit as head of the political department there. Secondly is uh, Wolfgang Ischinger, the chairman of the Munich Security Conference, but also, I think, uh, a perfect example of a German diplomatic export. He's held some of the most important ministries, uh, sorry, posts in the, within the German foreign ministry, starting his career uh, in the staff of the Secretary General of the United Nations, but ending uh, as ambassador to, to Washington and London. He was director of the policy planning staff, deputy foreign minister, but he's also the first uh, port of call whenever anything really challenging and difficult comes up with, such as most recently working on the, on the Ukraine issue. And finally, um, Almut Muller, who has been the head of the Alfred von Oppenheim Center for European Policy Studies at the German Council on Foreign Relations since 2010. Uh, before that, she's lived and worked as a as a policy analyst in a number of different places. And the DGAP, the German Council on Foreign Relations, is also an organisation that had a, a long history with Egon Barr. So she can talk about about that as well. Christoph, to to start the discussion, would you mind telling um, Europeans who are not German just how big a figure Egon Barr w- was and, and what his legacy means and what he means for Germany today? Well, he was an extraordinary figure for several reasons. Uh, one is because he was a man who, who was able to shape policy through, through words. He was extremely skillful in finding a formula for policies that he pursued in a very strategic vision. One of the few people in Germany who had a strategic vision then and now. Uh, and his strategic vision in, in the early 60s was we have to accept realities there is the Soviet Union. We can't have German unification without the Soviet Union feeling that it accepts it. Uh, and uh, later on this summer, he's been pointing out that we need to deal with Russia because it's there. He's been a realist wanting to accept realities in order to change them. Uh, that's been his policy right throughout. And it's been uh, defined, and I wonder whether my, my uh, co-panelists would agree with that, defined not by a view of uh, a Western vision or even a European vision, but very much a German vision. He's been, in many ways, an old-fashioned German patriot, uh, thinking that he, the task of Germans is to look after German interests, and in this connect, in this definition of German interests, it was essential that Russia should play a role because Russia is there and Germany depends to some extent on what Russia is doing for its security and well-being. So that's really what he's been saying all these years, and he's been saying it skillfully, he's been saying it with charm, with clarity, and uh, 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 and I think that's been his major impact. So he was best known as the, the architect of Ostpolitik, which he developed now. together with, with Willy Brandt, and which, for which Willy Brandt received the Nobel Peace Prize in, in 1971. 
Wolfgang, do you want to tell me a, a bit about how this idea of us politique developed and how it was anchored in the ministry when you joined it? Well, let me, uh, Mark, uh, let me start by just following up uh, a bit on what Christoph just said. And I, I totally agree with his description and assessment of uh, the role of Egon Barr. Maybe just two brief additional points. I think one of the remarkable um, things that Egon Barr was able to do was that he knew how to think big, but take small steps. He had a strategic vision, but he knew that insisting on implementing the strategic vision in one sweeping uh, effort was uh, surely going to fail. So he was a master in designing the small step approach to large problems. And the second, um, my second remark uh, is closely linked to the first one. Uh, Egon knew extremely well which issues in um, challenging German or European foreign policy were going to be impossible to resolve at that particular moment in time, and which issues actually might be, might lend themselves to be resolved. So he was masterful in designing his strategy in a way that the solvable issues were going to be addressed, and the non those that were not ready to be solved at that particular moment were going to put to be put in brackets, uh, not to be forgotten, but to maybe to be addressed later on. That's what I call the Egon Barr method. Now back, just back to your question. I mean, uh, Egon Barr, of course, was not always, and to this day, even even uh, you know, uh, now that he has passed away. Um, was not a man uh, without controversy, uh, you know, uh, re controversy regarding regarding his his his, his strategic goals, uh, regarding his style of work. He was being he was being uh, savagely attacked for uh, you know secret back channel contacts with the Soviet Union. Um, Henry Kissinger is known to have said rather nasty things, not only about Willy Brandt, but about, um, about Egon Barr in the initial years until Nixon, Kissinger, and, and subsequent American leaders began to understand that uh, Egon Barr was not really somebody who was going to damage American interests. He was, as, as Christoph said, a true German patriot thinking about the future of this country, but not trying to to move it away again from the West, but trying to find a way for us to live with Russia. And I think that is the, that is, uh, the one area that is of great interest today as we have the, the problem with Russia. And of course, Egon would say, and he did say uh, until, until a few days before his death, uh, we can't just go on uh, without having a meaningful dialogue with Russia. Let's talk, even if we seriously and totally disagree, even if we have huge tensions. It's not okay that the NATO-Russia Council, which was designed as a bad weather instrument, has not been meeting in, in many months. That would be his approach, I think. So it is of great relevance for, uh, to the current situation. 
So, Amut, I don't think you were even born when Egon Barr um, launched the idea of, of change through rapprochement um, <laughs> back in the 60s, or even when Willy Brandt won his Nobel Peace Prize in 1971. What does, what does Egon Barr mean to you, and to what extent do you think that he uh, has been a barrier to fresh thinking in Germany? Because he was clearly an enormously successful man who... Uh, changed the shape of, of Western history in a very positive way. But how much do you think today's Germans are impeded by the Bar legacy when it comes to, to kind of trying to engage with uh, with Russia? Well, you're quite right. Um, to me, Egon Bar, in um, many ways, as a, a type of, of character and strategic thinker, um, sometimes felt a bit like from a different time, aus der Zeit gefallen, uh, with its immense, its immense clarity and very down-to-earth way of speaking, not shying away from controversy, making blunt statements often, but being witty, being entertaining even. Um, he was engaging in, in uh, many arenas amongst them, the German Council on Foreign Relations, uh, until, until recently. So we had the chance to, to see him interact. And um, indeed, I mean, in terms of style, really um, someone who distinguished himself from um, other politicians around these days, a different type of character that, um, to me, was always very refreshing because it offered, um, as the gentleman pointed out um, previously, um, sort of a, a, a real food for thought, a real sometimes provoking trigger to sharpen your own thinking, including on Ostpolitik and the most recent um, developments that we've seen. I mean, personally, myself, I am uh, working on sort of the Eastern dimension of the European Union from a European Union um, angle. And it was interesting to see that um, in the course of the previous rounds of enlargement, the European Commission coming up with the concept of wider Europe, there was a lot of talk in the then Steinmeier uh, surroundings of a new phase of Ostpolitik and indeed the then foreign minister writing about that. Um, I don't see that uh, much of this happening now and in my interpretation what I uh, see more is that um, of course um, Egon Barr's legacy is very much challenged in terms of process as was pointed out having a strategic vision um, being open for conversation fundamentally and looking at pragmatic steps. But um, if you look at substance, then, of course, Ostpolitik was a very specific setup, a very specific arrangement. Um, and in this regard, I feel there is more of a hesitance of, of policymakers these days to use it as a blueprint. Um, and sometimes maybe it's even interpreted too much from outsiders' perspectives um, that this is the case in the, in the German context. Because, of course, if you look at Ostpolitik, one fundamental um, pillar was we do talk with uh, Russia, but some things on the table um, we decide um, to engage on with, with Moscow and not with the other Germany in the first place, for instance. And this is something that uh, contemporary Germany, of course, um, is very, very and rightly so con cautious about um, talking over the heads of others on the future of a country such as Ukraine. Um, Germany is engaging very much as part of the European um, Union community and uh, again process and uh, his legacy is in process and in a strategic vision but on substance I also uh, see that there are different visions nowadays with regards to uh, um, Russia and the East. Well, I mean, one has to say that man also was great fun. You know, he's one of the, he was intellectually challenging. He had a sense of humor. 
he he was self-deprecating in his humor. He uh, uh, he was not talking down to you. He took you seriously when you talked to him. Uh, but he was, of course, no small talk talker. He really always had something that was important to him, and he pushed that. Uh, that's made, I think, explains his uh, impact. Uh, and of course, if I now think of the German scene over the last few years, uh, there, there, there are very few bars around. In fact, uh, there may be one or two who still talk about uh, the long-term interests of the country, the strategic challenges it's had to face. We've had a, uh, a somnambules debate over foreign policy, more or less referring to the old consensus, never challenging it, never developing it further. There are very few people, uh, in addition to Egon Barr, who had the freedom of mind and the, and the self-confidence uh, to challenge some of these assumptions and not to be afraid to put this forward in a way it was always a pleasure to be present with. So we'll miss him very much, both for his energy, uh, for his frankness, uh, for pushing thoughts, and for the nice ways indeed in which he did that. Wolfgang, you're one of the people who has been challenging Germans to, to rethink um, the relationship with, with Russia, both through your actions, but also... Um, through your writings on on, on arming Ukraine and other sorts of issues, do you think that Egon Barr was was too much of a Putin of a Putin fascia? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, but you know, let's be clear about the difference of what the problem was during the period of Ostpolitik, as Almut pointed out, and what the problem is today. In those days. Um, the Willy Brands, the Egon Bars, and later, of course, the Helmut Kohls and the Genschers, etc., were, were, were spending a huge amount of energy trying to figure out the future of Germany. Germany was the problem that needed to be somehow resolved. Um, no one thought it would then happen quickly, but uh, today, of course, it's no longer Germany which is the problem. We have a problem in which we involve ourselves as one of the as one of the participating uh, states trying to help that is ukraine um, and that of course creates a totally different relationship between us uh, uh, the, the the governments involved and 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 the russian governments in those days we were uh, we were it we were the problem uh, now we are uh, part of a group trying to solve a totally different uh, problem. I also would like to uh, just add a point to what Christoph said about the man, uh, Egon Barr. Uh, he clearly was one of these few people who truly enjoyed thinking outside the box. He was able to do it intellectually, um, and he did it. Um, and that made him... Uh, stand out, uh, one of the few really great uh, thinkers in post-war Germany in terms of foreign policy. He never really, as, uh, uh, in my recollection, he never really published any 500-page uh, book or, or so, but with a few speeches and a few terms, such as Wandel durch Annäherung, uh, you know, change through rapprochement, um, he defined an entire period and an entire policy. Um, and finally, uh, you know, when I think about what might be the one or two uh, lessons that, would, that one could draw upon in, in thinking about Egon Barr's approach to foreign policy, I think it is clearly 
the lesson that you will not win a negotiating victory, whether it's on Ukraine or on any other major issue, if you try to humiliate the other side. Egon Barr was very good in being a, a totally modest and sometimes a rather secretive negotiator, but he never humiliated any of his interlocutors. And I think that is uh, one of the one of the important, uh, you know, facets uh, in 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 modern diplomacy, which is conducted so much in the public in the public view. Uh, one wrong word, and your and your adversary might feel humiliated, might be humiliated, and that makes uh, success so much more difficult. Egon Barr was very good in never making that mistake. Mark, I think one word on, on the Putin-Versteher uh, question that you raised. I think Barr was not a Putin-Versteher. He was somebody who, who was a reality-Versteher. And he used reality in order then to try to find out ways of changing it. But without recognizing reality, that's one of the basic tenets of his, of his concept. Without understanding and accepting reality, there's no chance of change. And that is, I think, also a legacy that he has and he can pass on to us today. And what do you, I mean, if we stick with this new reality, obviously um, some of the changes have been very well laid out by all of you that it's not a German problem anymore. There is a kind of European problem. Um, and obviously one has to have a way of balancing a kind of uh, tough reaction to, to what's happening in, in Ukraine whilst maintaining relations with our biggest and most important eastern neighbor but where, where do you think um the the roots of a new ostpolitik um are going to come from and do you think that is something that is sort of happening how far are we to, uh, down the path of, of finding a new ostpolitik yeah <laughs> i was just uh, uh, wondering one thing that i i thought about in you know, in the run-up to this conversation was to what extent when uh, Germany, alongside with other EU member states, thought, thought about how to rearrange, um, you know, what they later on called European neighborhood policy, they were wise to say European neighborhood policy is one that is targeted at our neighbors, but also at another big neighbor who is not part of that policy, Russia. Um, but they were not able to see at that stage, um, a little more than 10 years ago, that um, the mere engagement with those neighboring countries will have an impact on Russia. So they thought it in a, a bilateral way, um, EU and those Eastern partners um, and EU and Russia, rather than thinking, let's look at it in a triangle. And I think here's a big learning curve that has happened. Um, Germany, as part of the Union, has woken up to a reality in which a step um, taken vis-a-vis -vis Russia is one that creates um, dynamics within the European Union with its neighbors. So it's um, various arenas uh, that are being played out here. This is not an answer to your question. I leave that uh, to the gentleman. Well, if 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 I if I can add just one one observation here at the uh, at the end of our conversation, um, I don't think that we are rapidly approaching anything that will look and smell like, you know, the new Ostpolitik. As a matter of fact, uh, the European Union and the United States has actually been quite successful over the last year and a half in holding things together, in falling apart again, as we did over, for example, Iraq uh, 10, 12 years ago. Um, so we've been, we've been actually uh, together 
in a in a in a meaningful way. Uh, will that solve the problem of Ukraine? Probably not, at least not in the short term. Is there a patent solution to this? Not really. I believe it's going to be a long-term um, thing. That is, and, and that takes me back to Egon Barr. Um, um, you know, persistence, um, not letting up. Uh, if we can't do it this year, let's try to do it next year. Let's not give up our principles, but let's look for meaningful small steps that could open up uh, a kind of a new, um, a, a new, ed not a new Ostpolitik, but a new approach. And I think what we are lacking currently is a sufficiently broad uh, discussion. It's, it is good that today as we speak, Chancellor Merkel and François Hollande are speaking with, with uh, President Poroshenko about the future of Ukraine. But it is, of course, not good enough that only very few, uh, besides these two, are having continuous discussions with the Russian leadership, thinking about how one could uh, define uh, a meaningful format, not one uh, that will be stuck in, in formality, how we could find a meaningful format, whether in a kind of a larger contact group or some other shape or form. I think that is an interesting uh, technical diplomatic question for the months to come. And then maybe out of that, uh, both sides could uh, figure out a way forward in terms of a new quote-unquote Ostpolitik. Okay, so... Um one of the things which has already come up a few times um, uh, in the discussion is, is the fact that Egon Barr was not a politically correct person and, and liked to speak his mind. And we've been gathering some Egon Barr um, quotes, um, uh, which uh, are relevant to today's um, discussion. And it'd be interesting to, to hear from the two of you um, whether you think there are some other ones that one might add to the list, but I'll, I'll read uh, uh, three of them out because I think they give a, a, a kind of uh, sense of uh, the way that he can, he expresses himself. First is it's about Russia. He says Russia needs to develop according to its own traditions. Democracy is not one of them. Uh, another one is about my own country. He says if necessary, Europeans need to have the courage to continue without the Brits. If we don't have that courage, we'll never be united. And the third one is uh, about Europe as a whole. He says the, the world considers Europe as a laughing stock and is just polite enough only to laugh behind closed doors. Um, be great to hear w whether what you two have any uh, Egon Barr quotes that you uh, that you kind of treasure and which you think might be relevant both to understanding the man, but also to uh, to understanding the, the future of his legacy in Germany. Well, I mean, just think of what he did in the in the Olaf Palme Commission in the early eighties. Common security uh, was a was a bar creation. The, the term common security was a bar creation. It expresses exactly what the man is thinking. Um, I'm, I'm amazed in, the, in your quotation that Europe plays such a role for him because I never really thought that was the case. He was not. Uh, he was neither an Atlanticist nor a European integrationist. Uh, I think he doubted whether governments would ever move into a direction which they would be willing to give up the necessary degree of sovereignty to act together, although clearly he scolded them for not doing that. But I think deep down he wondered whether uh, we weren't really in a much more old-fashioned kind of uh, world. Uh, 
And uh, if I look, if I look at the behaviour of our governments today, I'm, I'm sometimes I sometimes fear that he may have had a point. I uh, I think that is the feeling that I uh, got when there was the chance to to listen and to to engage a little bit as well. In a way, I mean, for me, Egon Bar was a personality that was uh, probably representing a time in which foreign policy um, was made and forged by um, big men and institutions and structures i don't know i'm wondering often what role they played in his in his thinking um in particular the european union it was i mean many of us are being trained in a school of thought that is really about europeanization and we are in a way um a legacy of his time of you know making um uniting this continent making europeans work together and i think a kind of thinking emerged from this um, new era that is very different, and I noticed that in the times I had the chance to engage uh, uh, with him. So, so I'd underline what Christoph Bertram was just was just saying. Personally, I feel, especially Mark, on the um, quote uh, regarding uh, democracy, for instance, um, Russia is not going to be democratic. Um, I feel that such a statement is really a challenge that makes me think and active and engage. And that is very welcome. And I take the opposite view. And I'd love to have the chance to argue this point. And as was pointed out, um, I suspect he would have been open to have a conversation, but one would have been very well prepared um, because I felt at a very late age still he had, had such wit and, and clarity um, that you don't want to um, sit in a room with him and fail to be well informed. Well, I mean, you know, the man wasn't easy. What would he do today? He indicated that perhaps one should get engaged uh, in a conversation with Russia in which one would also consider the possibility of lifting sanctions. Very difficult to do that in the European context, but that clearly is one of the things that he had in mind. I think that if he looked at Ukraine, he probably would feel there's very little to do about uh, eastern Ukraine. Uh, the real problem is the survival of Ukraine as it is today uh, in its economic woes and uh, in its strategic woes. And one should not, not uh, believe that Ukraine can blossom without some degree of, of Russian support. Uh, he would probably, in, in the case of Syria, say we made a big mistake of trying to do things without Assad. Uh, he would be highly critical of everything that happened in, in Iraq and elsewhere as a result of the George Bush disastrous policies. So he would be he would, he'd not somebody, he wouldn't really, be, he doesn't accept the status quo. He wanted to start from it and change it. And I think that's, he would be, he, he, he was not, a, he was not a, a very convenient person. Uh, <laughs> that's what that the I German think, context needs, I think, very much. That, I think, is why we remember him and why we loved him. That was a, a fascinating discussion. Um, we have, been trying to do some work on on how uh, German thinking, particularly on Russia, has evolved over the last period of time since the Ukraine crisis started. So last year we we published a a paper on reframing Germany's uh, Russia policy by Stefan Meister. We um, are also going to link to some of the things which people have been writing about Egon Barr and his legacy on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu/slash podcast and um we also welcome any contributions from listeners to egon about egon bar's uh contributions to to your uh, experience and what you think ab about that you could write to us about them uh, you can write to me directly at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu so that brings uh, a 
to the discussion about Egon Barr to an end, um, but we're left with one uh, last important segment, which is the, the bookshelf segment. Wolfgang had to leave a bit earlier, so we'll live without his recommendation. But what's on your uh, bookshelf at the moment, uh, Almut? I was um, revisiting a book of a, of a friend who traveled to Angola a while ago with his rucksack and had a wild experience of getting into this country of oil boom and nepotism and uh, legacy of war. And uh, this is Daniel Metcalf's Blue Dahlia Black Gold, A Journey into Angola, which was published um, in English already a couple of years ago and has now been taken on by a German publisher. Um, and I am looking into this book again now and see how the translation is being done, but uh, thoroughly enjoying not only being taken into a country that is um, very far from the things that I usually look at and a country that is closed uh, up and not so very accessible. And that uh, is particularly a country um, where um, Europe has a strong colonial history and legacy. And I find these are the most fascinating passages of, of this book, Blue Dahlia, Black Gold, A Journey into Angola by Daniel Metcalf. Um, what about you, uh, Christoph? What's on your bookshelf at the well, moment? Well, I have to admit that what I've read in these, in these holiday times was an old... Uh, an old favorite, which I reread, Herbert Melville Moby Dick. And it's the most extraordinary book on fate and sin and destiny and uh, tragedy and Wales. Uh, an extraordinary language uh, written 150 years ago. Uh, and uh, uh, it's, I'm still moved when I think of it. I've been fascinated by rereading it, understanding it for the first time. And... Uh, it's a very, it's, it's an extraordinary story. It's one of the very big epoches of, of world literature. So when you have next year holidays, try and read it again too. It is an incredible book. I remember having to, to pass an exam on it at, at high school. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I love it now. very closely. High school, but then later on, but it's, it is a richest, extraordinary, I mean, it's one of those big, big, great joys of literature that one can come across. I've also been mainly reading fiction, actually, over the holidays. I've been reading uh, an old book by Philip Roth, The Counterlife, which is a, a kind of wonderful uh, Roth-like book, but as well as it's part of the Zuckerman series. But it, it's got some fascinating passages on, on the whole politics around Israel and the way particularly that European uh, politics has, has, has developed on that. So I, I highly recommend that both because it's a joy to read like a lot of Philip Rothbard's, but it's also one which is infused with quite a lot of interesting politics as well. So that brings uh, this podcast to an end with big thanks from Wolfgang Ischinger, Albert Muller and Christoph Bautheimer, myself, Mark Leonard. It's goodbye for now. The producer of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke and our editor is Katarina Botel. <laughs>